Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author David Boer, who joined me to talk about his 2017 book, No Return, The Jerry Irwin Story, UFO Abduction or Covert Operation. The book explores the interesting case of Jerry Irwin, a young soldier in the US Army who, whilst driving back to his base on a cold February evening in 1959, witnessed an unusual light in the sky. Stopping to investigate, he left a message on his car to make other motorists aware and walked through the undergrowth towards the spot where he thought something had crashed or landed. He would later be found unconscious and from that point on would be beset by inexplicable blackouts and bizarre behaviour which threatened to derail his promising army career. Then one day early in August 1959, he suddenly deserted his army post in Texas and seemingly disappeared without a trace. What happened to Jerry in those months is one of ufology's less famous mysteries, but a fascinating one nonetheless. Was this an alien abduction case, two years before something similar happened to Betty and Barney Hill? Or, as has been suggested with those events, could it be something more terrestrial and nefarious? No one knew what became of Jerry until David decided to research the mystery, and the book details the results of those investigations. We begin the interview by laying out the established timeline for the case, and then talk further about how David uncovered more about what happened to Jerry. It's a very interesting conversation. Enjoy! David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me on your show. You're very welcome. I remember being fascinated by the Jerry Irwin case um, when I read about it in Dimensions by Jack Belay, and I hadn't really read much more about it since then. So what drew you to investigating what happened in more detail? Um, I, it was a story that I was familiar with from years before reading Jacques Vallée's work. But in 2013, um, I returned to one of the books of one of his books called Dimensions, where he provides a summary and a, that's probably, I guess that's the one you're referring to, that he provides a summary and an analysis of Jerry Irwin's story. And for some reason, when I read it this time, I just got very, very deeply intrigued by it. Uh, because, well, should we, should we just run through the a rough sketch of what that story is? Yeah, I think that would be really good for the listeners who aren't familiar with it. 
Okay, so here's here's the story as it was known until until I did this research. Um, in 1959, a young soldier named Jerry Irwin was returning to his army base after taking leave in Idaho with his family. It was late February. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. And as he was driving on this kind of very lonely highway without any other cars around, uh, he saw a bright light crossing the sky ahead of him. And he, um, he saw it go down sort of behind the ridge close to the highway. And then it seemed to like uh, flare up, like it crashed or something behind the ridge. And that got his attention. He was immediately concerned. He didn't know what it was, but he thought it might be a plane crash. So he parked his car. He Actually, he did a U-turn because he had to go back to the place where he thought was the closest on the highway to where the crash was. And thinking quickly about it, he, he decided that um, he left a note on his steering wheel telling passerby that he, anyone who might, have, might stop, that he was going off to look for, uh, to provide assistance for a plane crash. And then he, thinking about it uh, again, he thought, well, is anybody going to even stop and, and see the note? So he, he got out a uh, tin of shoe polish and he wrote stop on the side of his car in large letters to make sure someone would see the note. Then he threw on his army overcoat, grabbed a flashlight and trudged off through the snow up to where he had seen the, the object go down. But he hadn't gone very far when he passed out. He blacked out apparently. And the next thing he knows, it's he's waking up in a hospital. He's informed that it's 24 hours later. He has 24 hours uh, that he can't, he has no recollection of. Uh, so the story that he found out was that someone stopped and saw his car, read his note, radioed into the uh, sheriff's office, and a search party was organized. And they found him. They followed his tracks in the snow, and they found him close to the top of the ridge, uh, just passed out, laying face down in the snow. And they had been eagerly awaiting him to regain consciousness because uh, in on his note, he said he th went to investigate what he thought was a plane crash. And so they had been searching all day for a possible plane crash, an aerial search, a ground search. They didn't found nothing. So they wanted to find out what more he could say about it. So as soon as he woke up, uh, the sheriff came in to talk to him. But but he had nothing more to add, really, to what they already knew. He just thought there was a plane crash, and he went looking for it. They kept him in the hospital a few days, and then the Army came to pick him up. 
they flew him back to, the army flew him back to his base in Texas. And they kept, they put him in the psychiatric ward of the army hospital to see what was, if they could figure out what was wrong with him. Um, the neuropsychiatric ward. They didn't, they thought something might be wrong with his nervous system. Uh, but they could find nothing wrong with him. And eventually they released him back to his regular duties. But he passed out soon after that. And uh, without any explanation. Uh, this time he didn't need medical assistance. But a few weeks later, he passed out in downtown El Paso, which is next to his army base, which is, the army base was called Fort Bliss. And this time he had to be taken by ambulance to the hospital because he was still unconscious and they trans transported him to the, from there to the army hospital where he had been a few weeks earlier. When he woke up, he did not recognize anyone from the hospital who had just, and they had just been taking care of him only a few weeks earlier. He thought it was February 20th again, the night of his incident. And the first thing he said was, once again, were there any survivors? So this time they were very concerned about him and they They'd kept him for a whole month for treatment in the hospital. Uh, the day after he was released from the hospital, again, without finding any cause for his symptoms, he took an overnight bus to Utah. He was absent without leave. He went AWOL without really understanding why he was doing it. He was in a trance. He, he got off the bus in the town nearest to where he had his incident in February and walked up the canyon about six miles and he, he veered off the highway at a certain location. He knew exactly where he was going, walked off into the brush and he found his missing jacket. I, I need to back up here because I forgot to mention that. When he was waking up in the hospital in Utah the first time after his incident, one of the things he asked about was his jacket. He had a sports jacket, a new sports jacket. I think he got for Christmas when he was on leave. And he had been wearing it under his army overcoat. Um, and, and when he was laying there unconscious in the hospital, he had actually been mumbling the words jacket on bush. And when he recovered, that was one of the first things he asked about. They mentioned his, that what he was mumbling unconsciously. And he said, Oh, my, my, my jacket, where's, where is my jacket? And they said, well, we didn't find any jacket. He wasn't wearing it. And it, the searchers did not see any sign of it when they were looking for him. So this, apparently on some level that was, had been bothering him the whole time uh, he'd been back at his army base on some level. And when he went back to Utah, he 
he went exactly right to the spot where that jacket was hanging on a bush. And he noticed that there was a pencil stuck through a buttonhole in his jacket with a note wrapped around it. He, he removed the pencil with the note, unrolled the note, but then he pulled out a lighter out of his pocket and lit the note on fire. And the note, the note burned up and it seemed as if the, the smoke rising from the note woke him up from his trance. And he was suddenly just very disoriented. He didn't know what he was doing there. He had no idea why he had just burned this note and suddenly realized he, he had gotten himself into a lot of trouble by, by going AWOL. So he dropped the jacket and he started looking for the highway. He had no trouble getting to where he found the jacket. But, but as soon as he woke up from his trance, he, he didn't really have a sense of where he was anymore. So it took him a while to find the highway. Uh, but he found it, and then he walked the six miles back to Cedar City. It was getting late in the afternoon, and he turned himself into the sheriff. Now, this is the same sheriff that had uh, rescued him only three weeks earlier, Sheriff Otto Fife. But Jerry did not recognize him, and the sheriff basically debriefed him. He, he basically said, you know, you were just here a few weeks ago, and you, uh, don't you remember what happened? And it, it seems like that apparently Jerry gradually started to remember the things that had happened while, while he was in the sheriff's custody. The sheriff reported in his, the return of Jerry to, to custody to the army, and a few days later, the army picked up Jerry they took him, they brought him back to Fort Bliss, and then he was punished for his AWOL by, uh, they gave him a hefty fine, and they reduced him in rank. And he was, he was upset about that because he felt like he wasn't getting the help he needed, and he didn't really seem to have control over his actions. He kept uh, asking for more um, attention from the doctors and eventually they he had another blackout spell and they put him back in the hospital for a few weeks and this time when he got out he disappeared he left the army base and no one knew, knew where he went and a month later he was dropped as a deserter and the story as it appears in Jacques Vallée's book is that he was never seen again. Hmm. So that's the point where I somehow this time when I saw those words, he was never seen again. I was just thinking there's got to be more to this story. People don't just vanish into thin air. He must be, uh, he must be around somewhere, either that or somebody knows maybe a family member what happened to him. So that's when I decided to get involved and just start trying to find out on my own what happened. Yeah, that's something um, in, in the book, early on in the book, I guess there's sort of a mild spoiler is that you find out some contact information and you, 
you you actually got in touch with Jerry. I I, I wasn't expecting that so early in the book. <laughs> right. Uh, um, when I first started looking into it, I first I I found out I I went to see whatever I could find on the internet. There wasn't really much there. It was all just rehashing of what had already been reported. And then I went to primary sources like I, I looked up newspaper articles from that time to see if there were any additional details that might help. There And there was, that, that got me some uh, useful information. Then I tried to do um, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests. And being a complete novice at doing that, I, I really got nowhere fast. It was just a big runaround from various uh, bureaucratic officials. And later I learned more about the FOIA Act and how there's, it's, it's a real, um, that's a real big skill set, learning how to get things from FOIA. But the, the long and the short of it is, I didn't get anything from, from that. So then I was thinking, maybe I could just locate some existing family members. I knew where he was from. He was from Idaho. He was from the Boise area, apparently, from the newspaper articles and whatnot. So I, first of all, I went to the library, the public library to see if they could help me do a search for someone. I didn't find anything on my own on the internet. That's why I went to the library. And and they started looking around for me, for, for anyone who might be related to Jerry Irwin. They came back like 15 minutes later and they had Jerry Irwin's contact information. Uh, so I never expected that. I thought this, this, could this really be, I mean, it was his full name, you know, Bernard Irwin. That's his, that's his, Jerry's his nickname. It's Bernard G. Irwin. So they had a Bernard Irwin in Boise, Idaho. And I thought, hmm, could that really be him? So I called him. They had, I got his phone number and I called him. And it, and I asked him some quick questions to make sure it was him, and it was. So I told him why I was calling. I, I wondered about that incident because nothing seems to have been written about him in all these years. And then he just gave me, it was like he was just waiting for that moment. He just gave me the rundown of what happened that night. And he seemed pretty happy to do so. However, at that point, after that night, he doesn't really seem to remember any of the rest of the story. He didn't remember the return to Utah. He seemed to think that people had made that up. And uh, that, that made me interested because I thought, what are the chances that this was just a fabrication? And I didn't, didn't seem likely. So... I continued my um, investigation to see what else I could find out about it. Hmm. And so what sort of things did that involve? What what information 
was there available that that helped you to find out more about what happened? I'm, I I know in the in the book you mention a couple of um, investigators for an organization called APRO, Jim and Carl Lawrence. Was that was that where you went to first in terms of looking at this this incident from a ufological perspective? Yes, the the first thing that was published from the world of ufology was an article in the APRO Bulletin, March 1959. Apparently the Lorenzans, Coral and Jim Lorenzen had gotten wind of this story from the media and they contacted Jerry soon after they saw the the articles come out. And so she interviewed him for this article. In fact, I read that article to Jerry on that phone call because I found out uh, that he, he said he had never seen anything that had ever been written about him. He also didn't seem to remember ever talking to Jim and Coral Lorenzen. So I read him that story to see what his comments were. And then I read him the story uh, that Jacques Vallée had published in his book. And that's when he said, oh, I don't think this story about going back to Utah and finding my jacket, that doesn't sound, I don't think that happened. That's someone's taking a lot of liberties here. So what I did was I had, I had uh, the book by Valet, but what I didn't have at that point was the original article that was the whole summary of, of Jerry's story as far as the Lorenzans knew, that was published. You know, the article, the bulletin article was published in, 19, in March, 1959. They didn't publish the full story that they knew of him until November of 1962 in Flying Saucers magazine, the Ray Palmer publication. Now that one I had more difficulty getting a hold of. I had, I think I found a copy on eBay but it took me a while. When I finally got that original article, that's when I had more to talk about with Jerry, including asking him about the sodium amytal interview that was given him when he was in the army hospital, which at times he actually seemed to remember having that, experiencing that. And at other times he, he didn't remember that. So one of the, One of the early patterns that emerged uh, was that there was just an awful lot that Jerry didn't seem to remember anymore. And I wondered if that could be related to his incident in Utah. Because in in both his interactions with the Lorenzans and later on, um, Jerry, after I asked about it, he requested his medical records from the uh, government and he got them and that filled in some of the gaps of, of the, uh, of what was missing. Hmm. And I know that, um, from your research, like you say, the lack of memory that, that Jerry has about that time in his life is the more, the more that you investigate, the more it seems sort of almost like a clue as to what really might've happened to him. And, once he's back on base, once he's back um, at Fort Bliss after that incident, it's 
if it seems like um, there's he might have undergone some quite invasive procedures in terms of analysis of of his mental health. You mentioned there the so the Amatil interview, but there was also a period where he was under observation for a month in a closed ward, and that seems like a period when who knows what might have happened whilst he was being observed. <laughs> right. I, actually, I think I need to back up for a second because he, when I met, when I first uh, talked to Jerry, he was 79 years old. That was 2014. And one could wonder if he was merely having some issues with his memory at his age. And the reason that I think that that's, that wasn't the case is that he was very, very clear about his life up to that point. He, I mean, his memories seemed to be sharp and clear. He could tell me all kinds of things about his life. And then, and then after that year or so that he was going through this, he had lots of detailed memories, clear memories, about his life after that, up until his current age. So it didn't seem like it was just a general problem with memory. It seemed like it was a problem with memory from that time period specifically. Hmm. And this is also um, chronicled in the records we got back from the army, his, his medical records also talk about his amnesia. So he was, getting back to your question, he was in the, uh, he was in the hospital, the army psychiatric ward for a little over a month. And what he remembered and what he told the Lorenzos at that point was that right before he was released, they gave him a sodium amytol interview. And he didn't, and now that's what they call truth serum. It's one of the drugs they call truth serum. So it puts you into sort of a hypnotic state. And um, he had no recollection of what he said during his sodium amytol interview, even at that time. And they wouldn't tell him. They wouldn't tell him anything he said or even what they asked him. But he told the Lorenzans about this, that he had that sodium amytol interview right before he was released. And then the next day he developed this urge to return to Utah. As, and he said he was in a dreamlike state when he got on the bus and went there. It does seem like his behavior might have been manipulated by a post-hypnotic suggestion. It seems like someone might have told him, you need to get rid of any, any evidence or anything that reminds you of this traumatic event. You need to get rid of it. You know, something like that. Who knows? But, but going, marching out in the desert and finding this jacket with the note and then burning it, the only, and who knows what was on that note. Mm. But ostensibly, it would have been something about what he was seeing when he, when he, before he passed out. It, it sounds like something that you could do with, uh, with post-hypnotic suggestion, not to say that's what happened, 
but it seems like at least a possibility worth considering, given that um, given that they did just administer the sodium amytal, and that is in his records, and they actually did give the uh, provide. The doctor did provide a transcript of the interview, or at least an abbreviated transcript of what Jerry said, which was very interesting. Um, but I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. That's okay. No, it's very interesting. Um, reading the book, the this whole this whole incident is sort of instigated by witnessing a UFO. But the more that you that you um, investigated and the more through the book you find out about what was happening is is that this um this happened in an era when the army and the cia were they were conducting pretty nefarious experiments in in things like mind control and and i mean the army as well were were testing things on soldiers so it's not unfeasible that alongside the the truth serum interview some other sort of well i don't want to recall it treatment but something other things were administered to jerry especially that time that 30 day period when he was under observation i think that's a distinct possibility and yes 1959 that was the height of the mk ultra experiments that was right in the thick of things and it was a it was a project that was run in partnership between the army and the CIA. The army, uh, I believe, it was the Army Chemical Corps specifically, but it was a branch of the army. And there is one very interesting detail regarding that sodium amytal interview. The the one that's recorded in Jerry's medical records was the date was roughly three weeks before he was released from the hospital. So the one that Jerry remembered happened right before he was released from the hospital. That's a three-week difference, which seems to suggest that there was more than one sodium amytal interview, and maybe he didn't remember the first one. But he, he was very clear about the fact that he had the Amatol interview, and the next day he was released from the hospital. And so it seems really unlikely that he would make such a, um, that he would mistake a three-week gap for a one-day gap between the, the interview and being released from the hospital. So I think the one that was recorded in his notes, in his uh, medical records, is likely not the one the day before he was released. So if they were giving him, if they were doing something that they maybe they shouldn't have been doing, that probably didn't show up in his medical records. And they may well have programmed him on that second Amatol interview. The sec the one that I'm saying is the second one. That's that's a guess based on the available information. But if that second Amatol interview happened, then that would be the logical time when they would have programmed him to do something like go out to the desert to destroy the evidence. Yeah, definitely. And 
going back to that, there's something else that you identify in the book is, is something you call the the two location problem in that as it's as it's understood in terms of the location where the incident happened the place where where jerry goes back to later on isn't the same spot it's did the initial the initial thing that jerry saw was uh, he was on highway 20 and then when he goes back he's on a different road is it highway 14 yes this was a uh, conundrum that i discovered while I was researching the story that had not been commented on before. The fact that all the newspaper sources and the sheriff, because I've I've obtained a document written by the sheriff eventually, they all say that he was found on Highway 20, which is, oh, I think close to 40 miles north of Cedar City, Utah. However, in the Lorenzen's account, which they're going by what Jerry told them, they say that it happened along Highway 14, which goes straight east almost out of uh, Cedar City, kind of east, southeast, about probably as the crow flies, I think it's uh, 20, 30 miles south of Highway 20. So that's a long distance um i mean it's it's a fairly important discrepancy so what what's going on there it at first i considered the possibility that was simply a mistake that um somewhere along the line they got the information mixed up but it didn't seem likely and that was because for for a couple of reasons one was that jim lorenzen actually wrote detailed information about the nature of Highway 14, about this beautiful scenic route that winds up through the mountains and 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 even where it comes off, I think he said even where it comes off from Cedar City. But whatever the case, on his return trip to Utah, the story is that Jerry remembered was that he got off the bus in Cedar City and walk straight up the canyon. Well, that's Highway 14. That's the only way that could possibly, that's the only highway it could possibly be. Because otherwise you're driving almost 40 miles north to get to Highway 20 from Cedar City. So it has to be Highway 14. If he walked out there, got his jacket and walked back in one afternoon. So um, so what's what's going on here? How could he have been found on Highway 20, but then somehow his jacket ended up close to Highway 14? That just doesn't make any sense. So that's that's something that uh, I grappled with the possibilities in one of the chapters. Whether that has something to do with a UFO that he saw or something else it's a mystery yeah definitely i mean what happened to his jacket he went so when he went back to towards cedar city and walked out to um, the second time around to he did get his jacket back i know i know that he destroyed the note that was attached to it but the jacket itself he did find and bring back with him 
apparently he thought it was too weather beaten and he just cast it down on the ground and right. left it there. I, I mean, that's, <laughs> okay. that's what he remembered doing. And maybe he wasn't thinking very clearly in that moment anyway, but he didn't bring it back with him. To be fair, I mean, I guess it had been a while, hadn't it? So, it, and it was probably quite a—it's a thin sports jacket, so it, it probably wasn't in the greatest condition. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was eaten by the rodents or whatever. So, yeah, that—I mean, his only possibility of physical evidence—he just left it there. Hmm. And just going going back to his initial sighting, were you able to find any? Any reports of other people seeing something um, in the area? I'm curious as to whether that was the case or or if he's been sort of conditioned to act in a certain way, was he potentially conditioned to see that UFO? Or are there, are there other witnesses to something in the sky that night? Right. Um, there, I could not find any sign that there were other reported sightings at that time. However, there was a plane that went missing around that time. And that is why the sheriff was so concerned and why they conducted the aerial and ground search, uh, because there was a plane missing. However, it eventually reported in safely in Northern Arizona. I tried to track down whether there was any information about that plane and whether it had experienced any kind of strange interference. Um, but I was unsuccessful. I guess that's, it's, they don't really keep records around, uh, aviation records around for that long, most, most of the time. I also tried to get records from the FAA or its precursor at that time. I think it was called the CAA. And they just they just don't have records from that time period anymore, I guess. So I don't know if there was anything to do with uh, if the UFO may have interfered with, say, the uh, electronic systems, electrical systems of the airplane. I just never found anything out about it. Hmm. But that's you. You. It's a question that arises because because of the well known effect that UFOs often seem to have on electrical equipment mm, yeah so um going back to to your research into to what happened to, to jerry initially after the incident what what were the other main things that you found out that that really added to filling in some of the gaps in in the understanding of what what happened to him i what were the things that to you were like a real sort of aha moment in terms of filling in some of the gaps? Well, one of the things was that aforementioned, um, the transcript of the uh, interview from the doctor, the sodium amytal interview. Is that Dr. Valentine? Sorry, Dr. Va yes, his name was Dr. Valentine. He was a, a captain. Um, one of the things that Jerry said that caught my attention right away was, he said, it, it all began at the age of three, or it all started when I was three. And of course, that's a familiar refrain from the abduction literature, hmm. where it seems they often, abductees 
often seem to recall a life, lifelong involvement in the phenomenon. And he said that he couldn't tell what happened. Like he was, he was instructed that he was not to talk about it. Or at the same time, or not to remember it. And that if he did say anything about it, there would be, quote, a big investigation that, and a lot of people would be uh, harmed by that somehow, uh, which was interesting. That's interesting. You have to remember that this was 1959. There had never been any stories of abduction in the, in the, in the press or the media before this. There had been uh, um, one event, which now looking back, we, we call it the first UFO abduction case, which was the Brazilian case in 1957, I think it was, Antonio Villas Boas or Villas Boas. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. Uh, it's because it's Portuguese. I don't really have a good handle on that, but I think you got um, it right. <laughs> Anyway, um, that was 1957. However, that story was not published for years after it happened. So nobody knew, nobody, especially in North America, nobody really knew about this case, except for maybe some very select UFO insiders because the Lorenzans knew about it from their contact in Brazil. He was um, a Dr. Fontes, a ufologist in Brazil, had told them about it. And he, he kind of uh, rolled the ball to them and said, why don't you do a story about it? He wasn't ready to do a story about it himself, apparently. But they felt like it was a little too scandalous. It was a little too out there somehow. And they weren't ready to publish it. Um but they were sitting on that story when they learned about Jerry, which would have been, if it was, this is a big question mark, of course, if Jerry's story is about an abduction, it would be the number two after uh, the Villas Boas case or Villas Boas. So they were, that's one reason they were probably greatly intrigued because they saw this new phenomenon emerging. So getting back to your question, since we, since Jerry was the only witness to that event, could he have been making the whole thing up? You know, that's a question that you have to ask. It doesn't seem likely given all that we know about it. And I explore that in the book. But one point is that it had never happened before. He, he, he had no one to imitate if that's what he, you know, if that's, if that's something that, he would have done, he, he couldn't have because there was no one to imitate. And of course, the Betty and Barney Hill case happened uh, a few years later. Well, 1961, a couple of years later. But again, that story was not, that didn't really reach the public until years later. Hmm. And you go into some of the similarities um, between um, what happened with Jerry and the Betty and Barney Hill case in your book. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, there's quite, there are quite a few similarities. The big difference is 
there was so much more documentation in the Betty and Barney Hill case. But the, what we do know of Jerry's case, it's it's there's a, there are a lot of parallels. There's the fact that they were both returning from vacation. They were both driving through a very sparsely populated, a remote area at night when it happened. They both experienced a strong compulsion to return to the scene of the incident. This was very pronounced with the hills. They went back repeatedly trying to find the exact spot where they were taken aboard the spacecraft or, or the UFO craft. The fact that they both both parties felt that they were not supposed to talk about the incident. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting, the many parallels. And another thing that comes up in conjunction with the, the Hills case is the hypnosis aspect. Hmm. They um, experienced hypnosis years after their incident to try to recover what they their what happened during their missing time well then they because of that hypnosis experience they had something to compare to and they saw real similar strong similarities between being hypnotized and and what happened when they interacted with the UFO occupants that they felt the same kind of the trance state that they entered seemed very similar. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out because not to say that, that their incident was implanted somehow. I'm not saying that when I'm, I don't know, I don't know what happened. Um, but it does raise the question of we've had this technology of hypnosis for a long time now, for most of the 20th century at least, if not before. And and the doctor who hypnotized the Hills, uh, he, in his published, one of his published uh, articles, he actually says that when you're, when a patient is in a certain stage of their hypnosis, they are extremely, susceptible to suggestion and they will believe almost anything that you tell them you can implant any any memory and they will think it's real i mean this is this is what he said he's the and this is the doctor that that hypnotized the hills hmm. so it, it even without mk ultra setting aside mk ultra just plain old regular hypnosis can produce effects of this sort. It can produce false memories that are very believable to the person who has them. Hmm. I guess that's something that is slightly different in Jerry's case in that there doesn't seem to be a lot of information that he recollects about what he might have seen when he stopped his car and, and went out over that ridge to have a look. Um, I know that was it in, during one of the sodium amateur interviews that he mentions a like a special intelligence? I think that's the closest we get to to some idea of what he might have seen if he did if he did see something like a 
a landed UFO or, or something like that. Yes. Um, he, oh, well, now I got the, I eventually obtained a letter from, I believe it was Kufos in Chicago, had a copy of this letter that the Sheriff Fife had sent to a UFO researcher shortly after uh, Jerry's incident in Utah to, to um, give his account of what happened. The sheriff's account of finding Jerry and hearing Jerry's story. And he related that in this letter. And, and according to the sheriff's letter, you know, and, and he's going by what Jerry told him right after he woke up because he was right there on the spot to hear Jerry's story. And according to the way, you know, our conventional understanding of memory, our, our best, our clearest memory is probably right after something happens. Mm. And then that's, that's before it starts to get distorted by other factors. So that could be the best account we have of what happened better than what Jerry told the Lorenzans. Cause that was maybe who knows a week or two after the event. So what he, what Jerry told the sheriff, according to the sheriff, was that when he left the car and trudged off through the snow, the light was still visible behind the ridge. And as he got closer, as he ascended the, the slope and got closer, the closer he got, the brighter the light got. And just at the point where he almost topped the ridge where he could see what was there, that's where he blacked out. So that's a very different um it's, that's a different story than the one that Lorenzen's got from Jerry, apparently, where he said he left his car and it wasn't long after that that he just blacked out. So if indeed he had, the light had been visible for, you know, we'd have to say at least 10 or 15 minutes, that puts a different spin on it. That this was not some passing meteor or it was something that was there for a while. And as, as you'd expect, if it really was there, it would seem to get brighter as you got closer to it. So I, what I'm saying is, it, it seems like it's quite possible there really was something there that he saw and that he was investigating. He, he did say that it didn't make any sound either. So in that, in that light, it's not a conventional aircraft. Hmm. And it did, it did seem like it was fairly close. So I think it's quite possible he really did see something. And in fact, that might be the more likely, the more likely thing that happened rather than somehow he was intercepted along that highway and experimented on so that he thought he saw something. I think he probably really did see something and that whatever interference happened to him happened after that incident. Now, of course, that raises, that raises the possibility that did he see something that was actually a military experiment that he wasn't supposed to see? And is that why they had to kind of uh, mess around with him afterwards to try to make sure that he didn't ever remember clearly something he wasn't supposed to see. Right. Yeah. 
So, and it was just going back to what I mentioned earlier in the interview where he mentions a special intelligence, but that was a that was in one of the military inter- interviews. Is that correct? Yes, that was the one that the the only um, Amatol interview that was recorded by the in his service records. Mm-hmm. And that's and and the, and the doctor, of course, the doctor just thought it was nonsense. He he didn't say that outright, but you could tell by the way he by his notes that you know this is this just hysteria? What are we looking at here? He doesn't seem to be psychotic. Uh, aside from this episode, I don't see any evidence that he's psychotic. But you know, like the subtext is obviously <laughs> this was. This doesn't seem like it really happened. Right, yeah. And so um, clearly Jerry didn't disappear. And so what did happen um, after that date in August when the the initial synopsis of his encounter ends? What happened to him? Oh, yes, yes. That's the whole... uh... (laughs) That's a lot of what my uh, research uncovered. Okay. And that's why the book is called No Return, actually. Because where he went was, it, it turns out that Jerry grew up in a very remote area of central Idaho along the uh, branch of the Salmon River. The Salmon River is, one of its nicknames is the River of No Return. And... That's where Jerry grew up. He grew up on a homestead along this uh, branch of the Salmon River. And uh, it was sort of his, you know, it was sort of his safe place. It, it was, and when he got into trouble with his, after this incident with, with his mind and these blackouts and his trouble with the military brass and all that and deserting the army, you know, he, uh, he went back to that place to, to hide out. He went all the way from El Paso to the wilds of central Idaho. It's a, it's like a, it's over a thousand miles. He didn't have a car. We don't know how he got there because he doesn't remember. He did remember going there though. And then he was in the backwoods for a, a two or a little over two months, I think, when he got word that um, the sheriff knew where he was, kind of roughly, and he was going to come looking for him. So Jerry decided to turn himself in at that point. So when we got his records from the military, we were able to nail the dates down and and kind of uh, figure out the timeline a little better. He deserted, uh, I think it was around the 1st of August, and he turned himself in in mid-October. Then it says in his records, and I caught this, military records have all these abbreviations, and it took me a while to figure out what they all were. But one day I was looking at these records, and I I noticed that that uh, on a certain date he was sent to, uh, to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, well, he never said anything about going to Fort Lewis. He only remembered going to 
uh, Fort Leavenworth after his time in um, hiding out. He thought he was transferred there to Fort Leavenworth. Well, when I um, figured out what the abbreviations were saying, it was basically that he was sent to Fort Leavenworth according to a an order by the uh, general court-martial. He was subjected to a general court-martial for deserting the army. And they sentenced him to hard labor at Fort Leavenworth. And uh, I called Jerry and I said, so you were, and this is after, I had, I had been to Idaho twice at this point to interview him in person. And when I called him and I said, do you remember, do you not remember that you were court-martialed and sent to do hard labor at Fort Leavenworth and the, which is the uh, disciplinary barracks, the army disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth. And he had no memory of that at all. Now here again, it, you know, I said, well, that's an interesting thing to forget. And he said, well, that was a long time ago. Well, you know, this is, all these forgotten events were just adding up to just a mountain of things that he could not remember. And especially something as significant as that. And that, that again made me wonder, why, could, why can he not remember that? Somebody must have been interfering with him somehow. Hmm. He, he, he was sentenced to a year at hard labor, apparently for good behavior or whatever, he got out after seven months and they shipped him over to Germany, interestingly. And he served another five or six years in the army. Um, and some of that was, according to Jerry, it shows he was listed, he was serving in Germany, but apparently he served undercover uh, advising the Austrian army during that time. Um, which isn't that interesting for someone who had been in that kind of trouble to get that kind of clearance and do undercover work. At this point in his life, it seems like after he, when he was sent to Germany, his memory once again becomes pretty clear. He does have a picture of himself with the Austrian army, as he recalled it. So I think that's all very interesting. Something... Something's going on here that just doesn't make real sense on the face of it. Hmm. Well, David, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I thought it was very well written and as a case that I was fascinated by and thought would only I'd only ever know from Dimensions by Jack Vallee. I was it was a real pleasure to read it as well. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. I'm, thanks for having me. If, if people want to find out more about the book and how to get it and, and yourself, is there somewhere they can find out more about you? Yeah, I, I don't really have a, I don't really have anything on social media, but I do have a, an email address. If people have questions or anything, anything they would like to add, it's, it's no return UFO at gmail.com. 
Excellent. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes if that's all right. Sure. Well, thanks again. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with David. The amount of information he has uncovered about Jerry Owen's story is quite remarkable, and he should be applauded for his investigative efforts and continuing the work of people such as Coral and Jim Lawrenson. His book offers a fascinating insight into the early days of ufology in the United States, along with the clandestine projects of the military-industrial complex at that time. There's a lot that we didn't have time to cover, so definitely get a hold of a copy if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support some other sphere with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someofthesphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, take good care of yourselves, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.